We're going to be uh, looking at Martin Luther and his reform of the Catholic Church, yeah, but we want to look at some background before we do that. Um, why is it that Martin Luther gets so much press? And why is he such a huge figure in church history? A few weeks ago, I talked about how sometimes we slow down at certain periods of time when we're looking at history, and other times we speed through. Like, for example, the last two weeks we looked at 650 years of church history, and yet now we're going to take, really, a couple decades and squeeze them all into one class. Uh, we're, we're slowing down for an important part of history, but the Scriptures do the same thing. right? You have the first 30 years of Jesus' life, very little talked about that portion of His life. In fact, from the time of His birth until... Uh, he gets into his public ministry, there's not a whole lot to said at all. And yet, when you get to the last week of Jesus' life, a very important part of uh, of history, the, the, scriptures, the Scripture writers slow down. I think Mark takes about six chapters in his Gospel to speak about the last week of Jesus' life. And I think he uses at least one whole chapter just to talk about the last hour, the last uh, uh, his time on the cross. So, so we do that in order to highlight things that are of, of great significance. Luther's greatest significance for his day and for ours is that he answered the most important question or he sought to answer the most important question. That is, what must I do to be saved? And in doing this, Luther rediscovered a biblical gospel that had, that had fallen away, that had, that had gone by the wayside uh, throughout that dark ages of the, the dark time of, of church history. So let me begin with prayer and we'll look at some background uh, that leads up to the Reformation and then we'll talk about the Reformation itself. Father, we thank You for using men and women who have uh, sought to understand Your Word more clearly and who have sought to, to know it and to love it and to proclaim it. And uh, we pray that You'd help us to think uh, critically in a good way about what we look at today, that we would understand the importance of the history of our church and and how you've worked throughout the ages to make your name known. Thankful for how you've worked through Martin Luther, and we thank you for his legacy in the sense that he desired to understand and not to sit by and and be happy with with what the uh, with what the the leaders of the church at that time were teaching, but wanted to make sure that he understood rightly how he could avoid condemnation. And we pray that you'd help our heart's desire to be uh, in a similar vein. Give us wisdom now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church had moved uh, far from its biblical roots leading up to this 16th century. And... Um, However, Luther was not the first one to protest against these errors. During the 15th century, the church remained pretty stagnant and, as I've said before, very corrupt. The Crusades of the 12th and 13th century represented some sinful conduct in the church outside of Europe, and it may have been really a low point in church history that there was widespread, in the 14th and 15th century, there was widespread corruption and abuse within the church, um, abuse of power, abuse of finances, and the papacy degenerated into 
um, strife and conflicts. And remember, there were at times two or three popes that claimed to be the the actual pope. One of the financial abuses that was um, that was uh, that was done at that time was called absenteeism. At this time, the offerings of the church went directly to the pope. But part of his expense was to pay the workers at the church. So he would deliberately uh, vacate ranking officials within the church in order for him to get more money. And as a result, people were not being ministered to. There weren't enough people to, to take care of the needs of the church. And the pope really didn't care. He simply just wanted the money. And that's what's known as absenteeism. In addition, there was an abuse known as simony after Simon the Sorcerer um, where many church officials would sell positions of church authority to the highest bidder. Okay, So, goes up on Craigslist or eBay. You want to be, you, you want to be a, have a position in, in the Catholic Church? Uh, highest bidder. We'll, we'll give it to you. And... Um, and obviously, the, the importance of getting that sort of position was not so that you could have a good standing before God, but it was so that they could um, they could take part in this financial corruption themselves, take part of uh, in, in that. Many of the popes um, and other church officers also held concubines and fathered illegitimate children, uh, violating the celib- celibacy requirement that they had put on themselves. Um, um, the corruption of the papacy really reached its height in the late 15th century under Pope Alexander VI. He reigned um, from 1492 to 1503. One scholar writes that Pope Alexander VI was as a rake whom even Catholic historians regard as an unspeakable disgrace. This pope fathered at least seven children by four different mistresses and rarely, if ever, denied himself any earthly pleasures. Well, the people were well aware of his wickedness, and um, so they would say of him at that time that Pope Alexander is ready to sell the keys, the altars, and even Christ himself, if he could get a buyer. That he is within his rights since he bought them in their minds. Well, this corruption was uh, not only um, carried out by the popes and the church officials, it was also carried out by the people. The church failed to protect and promote the true gospel, and so they fell into superstition and idolatry. And, um, and one of the things that they, they saw, as, saw with great value was, was something known as relics, or were something known as relics. Um, anyone have any idea what those are referring to? Mark? Uh, something, either something of great personal, either an actual bone of uh, right. saints or something that was personally owned by an intimate by Right, by a saint, by Mary, by Jesus, exactly. And, what they, and these, what they would do is they would, uh, the church would purchase them and you would actually gain value from either owning one of them yourself, so you pay money to the church to have one for yourself, or by just looking at one. So what it would turn into like a museum type thing where people would come from all around and pay in order to see these these uh, relics. Just a little further, when you're driving around town in the Catholic, Catholic Church and it says Saint Therese or Saint Irenaeus or Saint Andrew, in that church where they do the sacrificing of 
altar for that sacrifice. And that altar is always a relic of the saints. Of the name of the church. Huh. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, This is how one of the um, German princes... Uh, or this is one, how one of the historians describes one of the Ger- German prince's collections of indulgences. His in- collection included one tooth of St. Jerome, of St. Chrysostom, four pieces, of St. Bernard, six, of St. Augustine, four, of Our Lady Mary, four hairs, three pieces of her cloak, four from her girdle, and seven from the veil sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The relics of Christ include one piece from his swaddling clothes, 13 from his crib, one wisp of straw, one piece of gold brought by the wise men, three of the myrrh, one strand of Jesus' beard, one of the nails driven into his hands, one piece of bread eaten at the Last Supper, one piece of the stone on which Jesus stood to ascend into heaven, and one twig of Moses' burning bush. So these relics did not just bring back good memories for these people. They were actually something that uh, they saw as a means of grace. That by viewing or owning them, then they could provide relief from the penalty of sin. In other words, atonement by looking at or owning these these pieces of history. And uh, you wonder why people will drive from all over to see uh, the face of Jesus in a slice of toast. You know, it, it's really quite sad. And many of these problems were consolidated. Uh, the, the, the love and the value of relics was, were consolidated into something that's called the selling of indulgences. An indulgence was the church's remission of works of penance to atone for, us, for a particular sin. And so, in order to support this idea, church leaders um, had built up a treasury of surplus merit that could be transferred to the people of the church and all they had to do was purchase an indulgence. And this would actually reduce the time that they would spend in purgatory and um, even some people believe that it would guarantee them salvation. Okay, So you pay money to the Catholic Church, they give you a little ticket. This is like your ticket, your indulgence ticket. Okay, you're going to spend less time in purgatory or you've actually guaranteed yourself Salvation, very profitable business for the church. For example, um, uh, I mentioned before that Pope Urban II would offer a plenary indulgence, which is just across the board, covered all sins. Every sin committed. All you had to do was sign up for one of the crusades and, uh, and be a part of that, and, and you, would, uh, you would have complete guarantee of salvation. Perhaps the... Uh, most successful and notorious peddler of these indulgences was a man by the name of Tetzel. And uh, he had a pithy little jingle that he would use. He would say, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Doesn't that you just grip your heart? Want, to, want you to throw in some coins? Um, and so, not surprisingly, the sale of indulgences brought incredible wealth to the churches at this time, and, um, and besides leading the people astray spiritually, the increasing cost of indulgences placed severe financial hardship on the people, and so the, they were becoming more and more bankrupt, both financially and spiritually. 
And as, at its worst, the church's abuse of, of pastoral authority by many of the clergy resembled that which was condemned by God. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. And would someone read verses 2, 3, and 10? Ezekiel 34. Once you find it, you can just go ahead and read verses 2, 3, and 10. You see the barbarian nature of these these um, leaders of of Israel at this time. They don't care about the people ultimately. They are simply using the people as a means to get what they want. And um, and so this should remind us of the tremendous importance of of biblical leadership in the church of the very high standards that God holds for those who are in leadership, both their character and their doctrine. And, um, and, and that, that we have a responsibility to pray for them. And I'm not talking about just myself, but, but many people who are leaders in, in churches all around. It's a very um, important responsibility. God holds them uh, th- that position very seriously. Well, by this time, almost everyone realized, including the church people who were having their money uh, or who were giving their money away to to these churches, they realized that there needed to be a reform in the church. But how would this happen? I mean, time after time, the popes would come along and say that there's going to be new improvements, but, but nothing would happen. And so they would either be frustrated by the corruption that was going on or they would fall prey to the corruption themselves. And so there wasn't much change coming from the popes themselves. But there were two other voices that arose uh, at this time that, that rose up to the challenge, um, not only for its corrupt practices, but also for its erroneous doctrines. And these two people are probably familiar to you. John Wycliffe uh, is the first. In the late 14th century, John Wycliffe was an Oxford professor and English government official. And he grew frustrated with the divisions in the, in the papacy, which was at that time contested by two rival popes. And Wycliffe argued that since God ordains authority, that those in leadership should follow the example of Christ as humble servants, not as greedy overlords. They, should, they, they don't reflect Christ if that's the way that they're acting. And so Wycliffe was, um, was, was strongly opposed to them. And he held that Christ's true church is not necessarily the Pope in his hierarchy, but rather the true church is the real body of Christ that consists of those who have been chosen, elected by God for salvation. And this had powerful implications. First, 
Wycliffe came to believe that the Pope and many other church leaders were already apostate or reprobate. That these leaders were already opposed and defying God, not, not, not advancing His cause in any way. Secondly, <clears throat> the fact that Wycliffe understood that, that the body of Christ is made up of, of believers, not the Pope and, and their hierarchy. Second implication is that all true believers um, should be able to read the Bible in their own language. All true believers should be able to read the Bible in their own language in order to know God's will for themselves and for the church. And um, after he died, Wycliffe's followers translated the Bible into our language. In fact, uh, it was the first English translation that was, that was made, the Wycliffe translation. Finally, Wycliffe declared uh, that transubstantiation in communion was false. The Catholic Church believed that the bread and wine actually was transformed. In fact, I think they still do. Is that correct? That, that it's actually transformed into the body and blood of Christ when you put it in your mouth. The priest puts it in for you. Um, Wycliffe found this to be irrational and unbiblical. And uh, he did believe that that Christ is omnipresent. In other words, He's everywhere at once, but... but um, but uh, not in a way that he is actually transformed into, or or the the food and or the bread and the wine are transformed into his body and blood. Yes. When the, when the Catholic priest says a blessing over that element, uh-huh. he raises it up in front of the congregation, and typically there's a bell that's rung. It's at that moment. It's, it's not when they get it in their mouth. It's actually before that. Okay. So for Wycliffe, um, he was not formally excommunicated, but the church authorities did not show him favor. He died in uh, 1384. John Huss um, was a man who followed Wycliffe's teachings, and uh, John Huss was a Bohemian priest who in 1402 became a teacher at the University of Prague. Huss's original concern was moral. He hated to see the church authorities degenerate, so he sought to restore Christian leadership to its former ideals. And he was very much influenced by Wycliffe's writings and came to believe that only God's elect people were those who made up the true universal church. And that in order to find out what God wants for us, for them, um, they needed to, to go to the supreme authority, which was the Scriptures. And that's where all Christians should be guided and judged, including the Pope. And Huss used his life to warn people against the widespread superstitions of the day, the worship of images and relics, and the misplaced belief in false miracles. Well, about this time, Pope John XIII, hoping to expand his power, proclaimed a crusade against Naples. And he decided to finance it by selling indulgences. 
But Huss believed that a person could not receive forgiveness of sin by purchasing an indulgence and that attempting to profit from uh, from it, from uh, trying to, to say that this is God's work that's being done, attempting to profit from this was profoundly wrong, he said. And he actually protested against the Pope's cynical move. And in, the res- in response, the Pope excommunicated Huss. Remember how much power the, the popes had at this time. Well, uh, Huss had the ear of a sympathetic emperor at that time, and, um, and so he tried to defend himself before the Council of Constant, Constance, and the conniving Pope John tricked Huss and, um, and later burned him at the stake in 1415. When he was asked to recant his beliefs and refused to do so, here's how he he responded. This is actually while he's at the stake, about to be burned. He prayed aloud, Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray you to have mercy on my enemies. And after he died, Huss's followers were outraged and they vowed to carry on his legacy, but there would come along one obscure man from Germany who would provide hope. All right, any um, any thoughts or comments on these two? I mean, we talk about the Reformation and we, we almost always go immediately to Martin Luther, but we have to remember that, that he was not the only person in whom God was working. In fact, before him came these two men that were foundational for what he was about to do. Any thoughts or questions? <clears throat> All right. Well, by the early 1500s, Europe was um, troubled, confused, unstable, and um, and on the one hand, the Renaissance brought great advancements in their culture and commerce and learning and scholarship and things, and even the printing press had come around the mid 1400s. But on the other hand, too many people had been deprived of the scriptures, and there were very few that could read, and so they they continued to wallow in superstition. In fact, uh, I think uh, my church history professor once told me that the reason that they had those stained glass win- windows that you see over there in Europe, the beautiful stained glass, is because they didn't have uh, usually a copy of the Scriptures for themselves. Even whole churches often didn't have them. So they would, they would see these things in pictures. And that's how the, the clergy would preach. He would preach from the pictures and tell you stories based on what he could do. And you can imagine how much had to be made up if he didn't really have the scriptures. Um, so they were they would often be um, teaching based on what they had heard through tradition. Um, and so they wallowed in superstition, but they one of the main problems in, in the people in, in the church at this time and the leaders is that they believed more in their own works and in their these little magic things that were going on, the purchasing of indulgences that supposedly caused some sort of grace to fall on them. They believed in their own works rather than the work of Christ. And so they were unequipped to answer the question that was most pressing, and that is, what must I do to be saved? And that's where the Reformation really begins. Um, And it begins with the most unlikely of figures, a monk with a hammer, a manifesto, and a mission. He was born in Germany on November 10th, 1483. Martin Luther was an intelligent young boy and his father had planned to send him to a university to become a lawyer. 
And he spent most of his early years to, uh, in deep fear that he would receive divine judgment. And this would be a theme throughout his life. That I am unworthy before a holy God and I deserve his judgment. And this would really grip Luther even as a young man. When he was 22, he found himself caught in a thunderstorm and, and was thrown to the ground by a bolt of lightning. And remember, it was at this time that Luther cried out, St. Anne, help me! I will become a monk! He knew of no better way to protect himself from the evil that could befall him. And so, from that point on, he abandoned his study to be a lawyer and went on to to work, to be a part of a monastery. He joined a monastery in Wittenberg, Germany and began the long road toward eliminating his sin according to the monks. And once in the monastery, Luther really... Uh, bolted his way to the head of the class. He was known as the monk's monk. He devoted himself meticulously to everything that they told him he must do. He, he wanted to excel at these things. Uh, prayer, fasting, work, studying the Scriptures. And uh, though all of his efforts to earn God's favor, or through, through all these efforts to earn God's favor, Luther never escaped this paralyzing fear that had plagued him his entire life. I deserve condemnation before God. And Luther tried all he could do, all that the church had for remedies. He, he tried everything. He tried attending Mass. He tried worshiping saints and relics. He even made a pilgrimage to Rome where he climbed the steps of Pilate's judgment seat, uh, kissing every step on the way up for good measure. But nothing seemed to work. He, he tried to perform penance for his sins, but was convinced that no amount of Penance could make amends for his sin. And also, he was convinced that even if he could perform penance and contrition for all of the sins in his mind, what about the ones he didn't even know about? I mean, what about his unknown sins or his, his unintentional sins? And so, Luther was convinced that God was an awful judge waiting to condemn, condemn him. And so, he talked about this to uh, his superior. And, and his superior told him that he needed to find Solomon in Christ. Wise words. However, that didn't seem to help Luther because even Christ seemed too terrible to contemplate. Well, Luther's supervising priest wisely encouraged him to become a professor of Bible at the university. Perhaps this would, would satiate Luther's desire to for more. You know, you ha, you have a guy here who just wanted to excel in everything, wants to be in the right standing before God. Will here, I'll give you this teaching position at the university. Teach Bible. There, I mean, if you do all these things, how can you not be right before God? Thought he, he thought. So his first project project was to teach through the Psalms, which he did systematically, working through them in order, one to one fifty. Well, when he reached Psalm 22, he stopped. Remember what Psalm 22 is about? It's it's about it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and, and in there it says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And Luther understood this to be a cry of Jesus on the cross, and he thought, "How could this be? How could God forsake Christ?" I mean, imagine what's going through Luther's mind right now. I deserve to be forsaken by God, but not Christ. Right? I mean, Christ was without sin. He didn't deserve to be punished. So, so it must be 
that God made him, Luther thought, who was without sin, to be sin for us, to take our sin and to be treated as if it were his own. It was an important idea that Luther discovered. It was the idea of substitution. That Christ becomes sin for us and we become righteousness. That the Christ would bear the penalty of death. And this, this thought shook Luther to the core. And he was, he was disturbed and guilt-ridden. He, he, he now started to understand a profound sense of God's forgiveness. Not that he had to do more. Not of working more in order to, for God to say, yes, that's enough. But to recognize that all of his forgiveness, his standing before God, was unmerited. Was undeserved. And this understanding of salvation came not from penance, didn't come from buying indulgences, but it came by faith alone in the Savior. And um, Luther was further confirmed when he came to Romans. Another passage he was preaching through or teaching through. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 1. And historians. unanimously agree that this was the verse that really brought Luther to his knees. This was um, likely his salvation. Chapter 1, verse 17, when he understood this point. So, pretty interesting that the Lord sovereignly worked to have Luther teach through Psalms and Romans. And verse 17 says, "...for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written." but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, how would he have ended the verse, the righteous man shall live by what? What would have been before? Works, right? And so, Luther, along with the Psalm 22, okay, that Christ is his substitute, and Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteous man doesn't live by works. This is what I've been learning my whole life. But the righteous or the just one shall live by faith. Now, I have to make it clear here that, that Luther did not see himself as an innovator, like he was coming up with a new theology. He was trying to reform the Catholic Church. And uh, in fact, that's what he used the rest of his life to do. Um, he tried to get the church to go back to its original roots. That that um, that it should have been rooted in the the scriptures, and Luther would only later understand just how radical this discovery of the gospel was for him. But immediately he realized that he needed to make amends with the church. He needed to reconcile his understanding of the true gospel with what the church was teaching, and and in their selling of indulgences, most notably. The uh, the problem during this time of indulgences had grown even worse. Pope Leo X um, wanted to build a luxurious new cathedral named after St. Peter. And so, how do you suppose he raised funds for that? Okay, sold indulgences. Okay, new round of them. Pay for the construction. And in Luther's mind, this could not stand. And so, on October 31st, 1517, very important date in church history, Luther nailed a series of 95 
propositions or theses to the door of the castle church in in Wittenberg. And these came quickly to be known as two major points. First, if the Pope truly had such control over purgatory and he was able to reduce the length of time that a person could stay in there, then why didn't he just release people from this this terrible place, right? If he really had the power, why tease people? Secondly, uh, in these 95 theses, they could be summarized with the second point, and that is, Luther held that remorse for sins is not a bad thing. That this feeling of 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 shame and guilt that we get when we sin, his idea was, it's not a bad thing. Because what that does is it actually points us to Christ. It's precisely, Luther would say, this contrition that leads one to trust in Christ. In fact, that's exactly what had happened in Luther's life. That his, his own contrition for his sins helped point him to his need for something else outside of himself. And it was Jesus Christ. Well, the, these 95 theses provo- provoked an immediate and dramatic response. All of Germany found out about this controversy, with which Luther was just trying to um, really just put before the church, the councils there. Um, he wasn't trying to make this a big deal. Uh, we, we think of him pounding it on the door, and that's like, okay, public forum, he's trying to... But he was really... That, that was just the, the way that that culture would would um, enter into these discussions, or we could say debates, as they would uh, enter their thoughts on the door, and then, then it would be responded. Well, for him, these uh, actually, because the printing press is already there by now, these actually got published and sent all throughout Germany, and uh, a copy made it all the way to Pope Leo X, this man who had funded this new cathedral, St. Peter's Cathedral, with the indulgences. Yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's the 16th century Facebook. In 1518, Luther was called to appear before the Diet in Augsburg to answer charges of heresy, and of course, he refused to recant before the Pope and the Church councils that that he was a part of. But this is only be this was only the beginning. In 1520, Luther published a series of books attacking the Pope and elaborating on his positions, trying to explain more. And most uh, inflammatory of these books was called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. In it, Luther argued that the papacy was the kingdom of Babylon and that they had dragged the church into captivity just as the children of Israel had been exiled into Babylon centuries earlier. Not a very pleasant way to speak about the church. He also affirmed um, that only baptism and communion were legitimate sacraments, or we call them ordinances. Okay, they, the other five were not uh, were not uh, adequate: confirmation, confession, marriage, ordination, and last rites. He said those were not sacraments at all in this book. And so um, he also talked about how these superstitions in the church actually manipulated the people and corrupted the church even more and that 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 you could not transfer grace from God to the people through doing these things um that that in fact grace is a gift from God and um they don't they don't have any magical powers in fact that's what he said about the Lord's supper which was brand new 
to to these people. Um, well, not surprisingly, this book caught the attention of the Pope, Pope Leo X, who issued a mandate, or what's called a bull. And the declaration began, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause, says the Pope. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Well, the, the declaration gave Luther 60 days to submit to the Pope. And on the final day, Luther celebrated the expiration of the deadline by burning the declaration and a set of writings that supported his claims. Well, by this time, Charles V, the emperor, decided to enter the controversy and he summoned Luther to appear before the Diet at Worms at April, on April 17, 1520. And upon arriving, Luther was presented with a pile of his own writings and was asked to renounce them. Luther said, I need some time to think about that. He realized what the consequences of that could be. And this is the probably the most famous, famous uh, paragraph that you've heard of Luther, and it's very profound. This is his response after he had some time to think. Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will give an answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe or right nor safe. God help me. Amen. This is Luther's reply. What a great statement. What, what, what a great statement that we could make and apply it to our own uh, thinking. Okay? If I'm not convinced by Scripture or by plain reason, then I cannot go against my conscience. And um, Luther's desire was to get to the center of the truth. One scholar said that with these words, Protestantism was born. And it was born on the foundation of the Bible as the supreme and final authority. Well, Luther's doctrine was condemned, but he was given 40 days to return home. And after that, he, could, uh, he would be handed over to the authorities to be burned. Well, without Luther's knowledge, he was kidnapped by Frederick the Wise. He made plans to make sure that Luther was protected. So this is a good type of kidnapping. And he was taken to a castle at... Vortberg, there to spend the next year in hiding. And um, during this time, Luther actually struggled with depression. He's very distraught, and um, he, uh, he, he tried to remain productive, but was very discouraged about what was going on in the world and in the church particularly. But during his time, he wrote many significant works, in, including a German translation of the Bible, which is still recognized for its precision and elegance and language. Well, back in Wittenberg, Luther's followers carried out uh, reforms within the church based on what Luther had taught. And on Christmas Day, 1521, one of these ministers held a mass after the new fashion in plain clothes, no mention of sacrifice, and in the German tongue. For the first time in their lives, the people actually heard in their own language these words. 
this is my body. And at this Mass, the element of the Lord's Supper was actually handed to the people instead of being placed on their tongues. And in Wittenberg, priests and monks began to marry and Luther followed suit in 1525, married a former uh, nun named Catherine. From uh, 1517 to 1525, Luther was the, at the same time the most revered man in Europe and also the most hated man in Europe. He was a very polarizing figure. And over the next two decades until he died, Luther kept a low profile and uh, continued to pastor and write prolifically. And uh, he even wrote some hymns. He engaged in theological debates among the, lead, the leading thinkers of his day. Um, and... Um, he he also struggled to manage the he, he struggled to manage the uh, significant changes that he had enacted. He didn't realize what the consequences or the implications of his posting of those ninety five theses would be. Um, and um, for example, many of the German peasants regarded Luther as a folk hero, and inspired him uh, by him. Um, they started a violent rebellion against the landowners and the rulers. And Luther was horrified. They, they had taken his teaching to an extreme that he didn't even uh, um, promote. And so he, he was uh, not too happy about that. And he opposed these people to their face. Um, from this time, Christianity, Europe, and the world would never again be the same. Well, how do we look at Luther? How do we evaluate him? Luther was the first among church leaders to, at least for a long time, to admit that he was not perfect. He was prone to violent mood swings. He was um, very conscientious of his own sin. He was not always correct. And uh, even his legacy is not untarnished. Okay, So sometimes we, we treat... Luther, like he's some some perfect figure, he still had some some major, not major, uh, maybe not major is not the best way, but he had he had some problems that he was dealing with, even theological. Um, but we we look at him for the things that matter most, which was that initial question we began with and and uh, and brought up earlier, which was what must I do to be saved? This is the thing that he was very concerned about. And in those types of matters, he was profoundly correct, profoundly gifted, and, and, and left an important legacy. Um, Luther's greatest importance for us as Christians comes in his theology. He understood the nature of God and the reality of grace in Christ in a way that few others have. For Luther, the key was the cross. Here's what he writes. He deserves to be called... Uh, this is one of the historians writing about Luther. He says, he, he deserves. Luther deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through the suffering and the cross. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the things what it actually is. Now, this historian is taking on uh, these two phrases that Luther came up with, the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. 
what Luther meant by the theology of glory is that people glorify their own effort and their own wisdom. Isn't that what was happening for for centuries in the church? Glorifying their own wisdom, their own uh, their their own effort, and not glorifying God. He says that a theology of glory begins with me, with a man, the things that he can do, the things that he wants, and it denies the reality of our helplessness before God. That's the theology of glory. But for Luther, this was a delusion. He was not interested in what we can do for God, but what what God in Christ has done for us. And that's what he calls the theology of the cross. That, That there's this great paradox that the perfect, righteous, omnipotent God came to earth in the form of a man and lived a perfect life and died a humiliating death, a death that we deserved to die, all for the purpose of graciously redeeming these miserable, rebellious enemies of His. That was Luther's, what he calls the theology of the cross. That it it was, not that he he disregarded glory altogether. Glory is important, but it needs to be in the right place. It needs to be... Uh, towards the glory of God. All right, so that's uh, Martin Luther his uh, and these other reformers. We'll look at uh, Calvin and Zwingli next week who are also uh, participating in reforms in their own parts of the world. And, um, and uh, so any questions or comments on Martin Luther this time? Right. Just holding up the picture and just talking to the picture. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to see how superstitions and misinformation right. and mythology can creep into that. Right. You go down to the DIA and they have these things called, um, they call them icons. Mm-hmm. They have two, they're, they're usually you know, shaped like with a point. Mm-hmm. And they open up with doors and there's a, a painting inside. Those are teaching tools. Mm. And so, you know, the art, the whole architecture of Catholic churches over in Europe. Mm-hmm. Case in point, look at the austerity. I mean, we have stained glass here in America, but the churches are, it's a nostalgic echo. Right. It's not a teaching tool anymore. Yeah. So, you know, the dissemination of the printed word and all of that has created a totally different reason I mean, for the building, you know. Mm. Yeah. And that's why it's so critical that we make sure that we are grounded in the scriptures constantly because um you know as paul said even if i preach to you a different gospel okay or an angel from heaven uh, maybe didn't say heaven but an angel even if an angel does if he preaches you to a different gospel then then let him be accursed so that means that we have to have an understanding of what the gospel is we have we have such great resources in our day i think the point of of that is we are so blessed when it comes to the resources, particularly the scriptures, and we need to make sure that we are, um, we have uh, fulfilled our responsibility to uphold them, understand them, promote them.
All right, any other thoughts or questions? All right, this has been good. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for um, how we see You at work in the past. We thank You for the people who have gone before us. We are grateful to see their example for us. And we pray that You'd help us not to venerate them, to, to worship them, but, but ultimately to use them as a means to point us back to You, to, to Jesus Christ, where we receive grace, unmerited, boundless, and free. We praise You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.